welcome to Twill Week in Health Law, the What Would Alex Azar Do podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on March 9th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University, McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who's excitedly waiting for his $31,000 dining set to be delivered, and is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland, who also wants the secretary's door of Ryan Zinke at $129,000. I think it's a set, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes, they come together. Yes. And maybe soon we'll be installed in a plane. (laughs) Yes. Today, it's great to welcome back one of our favorites, and we hear from our listeners, a great pod favorite generally. Heather Howard is a member of the faculty at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. She is director of two Robert Wood Johnson Foundation-funded programs that provide technical assistance to help states implement the ACA and reform their healthcare delivery systems. She teaches courses in implementation of the ACA, state and local health policy, public health and politics, and the social determinants of health. Always a great treat to have you on the pod, Heather. Thanks. I'm excited to be back. All right. So just a few crazy things have been going on over the last week. So uh, let's touch on a couple of them. First of all, there's a a new case that's been filed in Texas by uh, 20 states that are arguing that with the effective repeal of the individual mandate, and so the removal of one leg of the three-legged stool, the whole ACA should actually be seen as collapsing inwards. Uh, Katie Keith at the Health Affairs blog puts it like this, quote, the states want to revisit MFIB. They argue that repeal of the individual mandate penalty by Congress renders legally impossible the Supreme Court's prior savings construction. I've seen Twitter uh, responses saying there's nothing much to see here, but haven't we said that about ACA litigation before? Oh, indeed. Yes, of course. There is, I think, some triumphalist uh, post about saying it's the uh, pathology of the legal academy that they didn't recognize immediately how brilliant the arguments were uh, behind the uh, original NFIB versus Sibelius case. And I guess my only comment would be that uh, it would really be remarkable to see how complementary the sort of chipping away at certain acts could be with principles of statutory construction with respect to you know the, the way in which a statute could just be unraveled entirely by getting rid of uh, some of it you know and that's uh, and I'm forgetting of course the stat the term for that but uh, but I've, but that's uh, that is really quite something and it reminds me also of the Dodd Frank Act partial repeals and other issues like that it seems that. If the courts were to really seize upon that as the way to sweep away the Affordable Care Act, um, on the other hand, you know, we may get to the point where, to go back to our old man on the sea uh, metaphor from a few episodes ago, the act itself is so gutted that it has all, so so many perverse counterintuitive effects when it's in operation. Um, just parts of it are operation as opposed to the whole law. That that might be that sort of Supreme Court intervention might be seen as the equivalent of uh, putting a suffering animal out of its misery. So we probably uh, overuse the zombie metaphor when we were talking about repeal and replace uh, a few months back, but uh, it'd be, uh, I suppose, uh, not completely surprising if the ACA actually becomes somewhat zombie-like, if they uh, keep on cutting pieces off it and uh, devaluing other pieces. But uh, all uh, increasingly uh, ironic, given that it is so uh, popular now as a proposition in the post-Obama times. So, uh, 
another issue that that has come up over the last uh, few weeks has um, been how shall, how shall I describe it? The Idaho non-waiver waiver, in which essentially uh, the good uh, folks of Idaho suggested that uh, they could uh, change the provision of some types of insurance policy without going through any kind of waiver process. And there was a lot of chatter about that as to its legality and so on. And surprise, surprise, HHS just uh, a couple of days ago uh, actually came out and said that that would not be lawful. It was a a very um, sort of uh, a long and uh, circuitous uh, letter written by CMS to uh, the governor of Idaho, uh, praising and alternatively burying him, but uh, uh, basically saying, uh, no, uh, you can't do that. And Twitter, of course, lit up uh, with uh, praise for CMS for doing the right thing. Of course, it could just be that CMS itself wants to be the angel of death, because after all, the proposed association plans, I think, would have similar negative impacts on the exchange risk pools as the Idaho proposal. To me, it is... It is a win for the rule of law, and that's exciting to see that. And I think it probably reflects the influence of the new Secretary of Health and Human Services, who's coming in and sort of setting a tone um, for we may not like uh, defending the law, but we're going to defend the law. And I think if you read the letter, there's some good language in there. They clearly are not taking any pleasure in doing this. Um, they're saying, we have reason to believe Idaho may not be substantially enforcing provisions. And then, and then they say, this is certainly not our preference. So um, they're certainly, you know, I think they are sending the message that we will enforce the law, but uh, the rest of the letter goes on to say, but we want to help you find ways to stretch it as much as possible is how I read it. Dear listener, you know that uh, when uh, Professor Howard is on, the topic is waivers. Medicaid waivers. As most of you know, 1115 waivers existed prior to the Affordable Care Act and uh, generally were used for what I guess progressives would view as relatively positive demonstration projects. Then they really sort of hit the headlines as the Obama administration starts offering some waivers as carrots to attract red states into expansion mode. And now during the Trump administration, increasingly Uh, and let's reference the show we did with Nikki Huberfeld a couple of weeks ago, Uh, increasingly it looks like they're being used to sort of dismantle Medicaid, at least as a health insurance model, and increasingly replace it with what looks more like a sort of a punitive welfare model. The first question I had for you, Heather, is that prior to the Indiana waiver extension, these 1115 waivers, at least under the Obama administration, have only a applied, as I understand it, to expansion and not to traditional Medicaid. But the Indiana extension appears to apply to Medicaid and the expansion population. Is that correct? That's right. And I mean, and that is a pretty dramatic departure from previous waivers. I mean, I think you put your finger on it. These are exactly the kind of waivers that the previous administration had rejected. And so you've seen a pretty dramatic change in, say, in them sending a message, but not just in what they approved, but actually the sort of affirmative statements. This was all preceded, this recent activity was preceded by a state Medicaid director letter that went out in early January from the head of CMS 
inviting states to apply for waivers uh, that impose what what they call uh, community engagement requirements on populations in Medicaid. So this isn't just, you know, states innovating. This is really opening up a new area. And I think what we want to think about is how does this change the entitlement nature of Medicaid? And does it return Medicaid back to the pre-ACA days where it was a welfare program? Welfare Medicaid had really um, made dramatic gains in becoming basically another health insurance option along the spectrum of affordability. And, you know, if you're below this level, you get this kind of health insurance coverage. If you're above this level, you may, you may be buying private insurance on the marketplace and getting a subsidy. Medicaid was just one of the affordability options. And I think what this um, might do is return us back to the pre-ACA world where it does look much more like a welfare program. Maybe it's helpful to remind people where we stand, that we've now had three of these waivers approved. It started with the approval of the Kentucky waiver, then the Indiana waiver, and then just this week, the Arkansas waiver. So we have three waivers that have been approved that have these community engagement or work requirement provisions in them. There are actually eight other waivers pending from states that would apply similar principles to their um, Medicaid populations. Now, it's interesting, you noted that these apply not just to expansion populations, but it's important to note that up till now, the waivers have gone to states that have expanded Medicaid. Um, And so from a lot of, you know, a lot of people might say, well, if this is the price of expansion, um, perhaps um, we can afford it. And in fact, you're seeing this play out currently in Virginia, where the state has not expanded Medicaid, but the legislature is considering a budget that would expand Medicaid if the state could get approval of a a work requirement. So I think they may go hand in hand in a few states now. Um, I would watch Virginia, where this is pending before the legislature, and North Carolina is another state where the governor has been trying to expand Medicaid, but perhaps this new authority to impose work requirements may be what um, is necessary to basically um, loosen up opposition from the legislature. So it's it's fairly natural, I think, that we would tend to concentrate on the work requirement. Um, that is uh, such a uh, an important um, platform uh, for the right, um, and obviously has fascinating historical implications uh, for these kinds of benefits. But can you supply a fuller typology of the kinds of changes that states are requesting? So, I mean, I think some of them I might characterize as sort of privatization. So when you have premiums or contributions or things like that, others seem to be more about eligibility and lockouts and things like that. And then there's the sort of the community benefit uh, employment uh, or, or work kind of provisions. Do you have a sort of a typology that you can take us through that you can kind of sort these various um, waivers, both old and new, through? Yes, let's do that. And let's we'll circle back to the community engagement or work requirements, but start actually with the with the premiums and co-pays. I think what we're seeing, so if, if you want to think 
about the buckets, you're seeing um, uh, an interest in asking more of beneficiaries and and for them to pay more and for new categories of beneficiaries. As you mentioned, not just expansion populations, but um, even lower income uh, populations are being asked to pay premiums and to pay um, co-pays. So you've got one, this category of, of beneficiary contributions, another category of um, requirements in these waivers and this new wave new wave of waivers is um, elimination of benefits elimination of non non emergency medical transportation that's one benefit we're seeing being waived um, another category I would say that we should be on the lookout for is the elimination of retroactive eligibility um, and so as you mentioned these really do go to sort of some of these were the streamlining of eligibility that were being made to make it easier for people to um, apply and to make that eligibility retroactive. Another category where we're seeing um, is how often people have to certify their eligibility. Some of these states want to have people certify eligibility every month. You know, when you add all these together, the concern, of course, is that it's really imposing burdens on beneficiaries who may not have, you know, it's adding burdens. They may not have access to the technology to be able to monthly certify their eligibility. Um, They may live in parts of the state where there may literally may not be easy access to broadband. Um, So there's the, so I I like to think about it as, you know, what's going to be the impact on beneficiaries and is this really going to depress enrollment? I think also from the state's perspective, you're asking more of the state administrative process if they're having to to certify monthly eligibility, if you're um, asking them to collect uh, co-pays or premiums, or often that may be falling on the managed care organizations, of course. Um, And so it's both, how is the burden going to fall on beneficiaries, but also how is it going to fall on um, the state workforce? And, you know, nobody is at the same time, we haven't seen any governors yet saying that they're going to be expanding their state workforce and in order to handle um, these new requirements. And in fact, we've seen um, in Kentucky that it's going to cost over $150 million to do the system upgrades to be able to track all these new requirements. So you're seeing a pretty big expansion of um, the sort of the, the, the governmental um, infrastructure that's necessary to track all these new requirements. Um, maybe we should pause there. I think we do want to dig into the, the work requirement pieces, but I think we should lose sight of all these new changes to the eligibility pieces, including especially this retroactive eligibility. Often someone will, a patient and a beneficiary might come to a hospital for an illness and the hospital is able to retroactively um, enroll somebody and they may be able to get coverage um, for the 30 days or even up to 60 days before they've in, they're enrolled before that acute incident and, um, and are able to get coverage for their expenses for from um, be previous to that hospital visit. And I think there's a concern that you're going to end up saddling beneficiaries with costs they incurred that they would have otherwise been able to um, uh, 
to, to have covered as Medicaid expenses. And, and of course, that may make it harder for hospitals to, they may have more um, bad debt that they have, that they can't discharge. So I have a somewhat lengthy intervention and I, I ask, I apologize for it, but I just wanted to look back on one thing we talked about earlier and then to set up a question to connect the, with the point you made, Heather, about uh, the technical and staff capacity of the states to handle massive new surveillance apparatus uh, here. The first looking backwards is just going back to Nick's lightning round point about, you know, the new challenge, I just glanced at the dissent because it sort of drove me crazy in terms of not being able to remember the legal term. Of course, it's severability, right? So the idea, I guess, of that lawsuit was that if you don't, if you've gotten rid of both the universal Medicaid expansion and the individual mandate, then you raise a serious concern about whether that is severable from the ACA when it gets struck down or eliminated or whether the whole statute should be eliminated. And it's fascinating to look at the legal reasoning there and the test of severability, one aspect of which is whether Congress would have passed the law knowing in advance that this part of it would have been struck down, right? And of course, that's the part that was struck down by the court, not necessarily the part that was struck down by a later legislature, because presumably the Congress would know what it's doing at that point. But (laughs) so that raises an interesting question. The the second side that I wanted to get to is this issue of the apparatus here. And there, there's this new movement, actually, of disabled Medicaid enrollees protesting electronic visit verification. And with respect to the electronic visit verification, this is a deeply troubling trend that was actually part of the 21st Century Cures Act, whereby certain uh, the caregivers for certain disabled people, um, they are tracked electronically. And to the extent that they and the person they care for deviate from normal patterns, quote-unquote normal patterns of uh, caregiving or travel, that has to be logged by the state as an exception event. And there's a great report by Jake Metcalf that I'll put into the uh, show notes that includes uh, objections from disability activists who say that this is essentially in the name of program integrity, it is a form of house arrest um, for the uh, enrollees. And so I think that just if we look at the sort of ongoing efforts to use more and more technology to keep track of what's going on in the Medicaid program and to nudge um, the recipients in various ways. It just strikes me as like the main reason for this is, is has to be seen as both punitive and also to award pretty fat contracts. Um, I think in the 21st Century Cures Act, that particular provision with respect to electronic uh, visit verification was itself um, lobbied for by the company that is now contracting to do those things. That's that's what, At least that was part of the Jake Metcalf uh, report for data and society. So it's it's almost as if it seems bad on the surface, but that the deeper you go, the worse it gets. Well, it's interesting. And you're right. And that ties back to the earlier point, which is what are these demonstration projects about? What are we testing? And traditionally, they've been about expanding coverage and testing new ideas for the delivery of care, right? To improve population health outcomes. And the question here is going to be, is this a, what's really going on? Is this really about reducing costs and reducing roles? And who's on the program? Now, you know, traditionally, 1115 waivers were subject, they've always been subject to evaluation requirements. And I think um, there's strong language in these approvals saying we're going to be testing these ideas. So one thing we can all hope for is that we'll be testing and learning from these 
Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not confident that the policy feedback loop will ensure we learn the the right lessons. But I mean, that can be one of our hopes is that if these are about testing ideas, well, then are we going to be open to learning what works and what doesn't? And we're going to know at the end of these, you know, even we're going to know pretty soon, actually, whether we've reduced the number of people who are on the Medicaid rolls and whether they, what we've really just done is kicked off a lot of people who um, need access to care. And it's also interesting, you mentioned the disability community. I mean, I think that the work requirements in particular are of acute interest to the disability community. There's language in the approvals saying that, that of course, these new work requirements have to be applied consistent with the Americans with Disabilities Act and that there need to be exemptions for people with disabilities. But, you know, what are the contours of those those exemptions? And I think that's one area in which you're going you're gonna to see litigation challenging these new these new approvals. One of the concerns I think we all share about our so-called healthcare system is the really awful problem of fragmentation of care that we continue to have. And you know, I I think back to to what will we now view as the good old days of 3 4 5 years ago when we you know, we pondered mightily on problems such as dual eligibles or the question of what happened to folks who were sort of in and out of the 138 FPL and so whether they're going to be in the expansion population or were they going to be uh, in the exchange population. And it strikes me that these new waiver provisions can lead to a whole new type of fragmentation problem because I think they not only might lead to just simple loss of eligibility and people walking away from the program, which would be one thing, but I thought think there's also going to be great churning. I mean, people are going to be locked out, will lose coverage, then will come back. They'll not make a payment. They'll lose coverage. They'll come back. They may be working or proving they're working or not working, and so they'll be in and out of the program. And this strikes me as, particularly given that we're we're dealing with probably a relatively vulnerable population anyway, as sort of the completely wrong direction to be going in. It's so interesting you, you, that you remind us of what we were talking about four or five years ago. You're right. We sort of, everybody was warming up to this idea of churn and what happened if people were falling off cliffs at 138% of poverty or 250% of poverty. But at least in that world, there were safety nets and people were churning uh-huh. between coverage options. And we were trying to smooth over those cliffs and ensure continuity of coverage and access to care. And now we're talking about really falling off cliffs because um, people are churning. They're not churning between coverage. They're churning off coverage. I mean, if we go to go back to your initial question is what, you know, what beyond work requirements are we talking about? Um, These states would say that you could be locked out of coverage for up to six months if you fail to pay premiums and you can't get back onto coverage until you've paid your back premiums. And in Kentucky's case, not only do you have to pay your back premiums, you might have to take a health literacy test. And, you know, I don't know how many people in the general population could pass a health insurance literacy test. Um, so if we're, we're, we're going to make it easier for people to fall off the cliffs and really hard for people to climb back on, we're going to have significant gaps in coverage and in gaps in access to care. And, and how can that not have 
an impact on people's health. I mean, in fact, if you add in here new proposals we're seeing where perhaps um, some states would like to impose lifetime limits on coverage. By definition, that means that you're locking people out of coverage who have been using coverage for many years, meaning they're very sick. And we're talking about ending their access to coverage. Um, How is that not dramatically changing the entitlement nature of Medicaid, which has always been there, which is probably a good segue to talking about the underlying question about whether or not Medicaid should be tied to work. Because I think it does, you know, it raises an interesting question. We do know that people who are work, who are working tend to be healthier. But the question is, do we, which way does that causation link run? And I think it's more likely that access, um, that people, that access to healthcare is what makes people um, productive and able to work. And the concern being that we, these waivers, um, you know, and we'll see, obviously, because we'll be testing it, may be getting it backwards, um, that requiring people to work in order to get health care may mean that they neither get health care nor work. Um, and that's not good for the beneficiaries or for the communities they live in or for our economy. I completely agree with all of those points, Heather. And I just wanted to raise a parallel here that I think is illuminating uh, and may explain the long-term uh, aim here because we we interviewed Nicole Huberfield a few weeks ago and um, I've posted about the how much I doubt that there is really an effort to learn what's the better policy here how it just seems punitive um, and I'm reminded of the way in which the federal student loan repayment programs are administered particularly with respect to income based repayment. And that story over the past 10 years has essentially been one of, there's this great guarantee that's made to those taking out the federal direct loans for college, for grad school, that they're going to have an opportunity to have income-based repayment and forgiveness of the debt after 10 years for those in public service and 20 or 25 for those in the various plans. The problem has been, though, that the government let uh, servicers and uh, and had some folks in the Department of Education administering the thing who really wanted to be as strict as possible. And then the servicers had perverse incentives where they made more money from fees the longer they could keep people out of the actual repayment in- interest income-based repayment program or forgave the debt. And long story short, um, over a series of years, this program has become a sort of quicksand of paperwork, of unreliability, of changing determinations, of frustrated students, such that now when the Republican Congress really wants to end the whole thing, it's almost impossible to rally either university, well, to rally students, universities are rallying, but certainly students don't seem to really care much because the program has been so corroded that people don't care. And it just seems to me that what's the the end goal here for Medicaid is to make it such a system of shoots and ladders to create so many potential pits that you can fall into of quicksand, quicksand of paperwork so that all of a sudden if you miss one repayment, hey, maybe we should add a penalty to that. And maybe we should do other things to it to make it as, you know, even more difficult to deal with. And in the end, the worse the program gets, the more people hate the state and the greater the political rewards for those who worsen the program. So it strikes me that we're basically in a feedback loop as long as we have sort of a means-tested model 
model, then we leave that model open to being manipulated into a work requirement model, other requirement models, such that those who have their worst uh, sort of outlook for the program or those who really want to see it get worse are politically rewarded for making it get worse. That's a gloomy picture you've painted. I hope it's not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it seems to me that um, there is that risk, right? That, but I'm heartened by the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, the um, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, generally is polling at its highest. So people are generally more favorable to the Affordable Care Act. And actually, the same is true of the Medicaid program. That if 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 we all learned one thing last year from all the debates about repealing the ACA, was that People, I think, learned more about the role Medicaid plays in their communities, and in in it's one in five people are on Medicaid. In some states, it's actually up to one in three people on the Medicaid program, and it's the elderly and the disabled and kids. And I think Medicaid um, people appreciate Medicaid more, so it's it's far more resilient. That would be my hope than we thought. I mean, I think you're right, and I think there's also the broader issue we're seeing is some states are trying these new ideas, but other states are trying ideas that want to expand Medicaid, right? We're seeing just in Minnesota last week, the governor reintroduced a proposal to allow a Medicaid buy-in, which would allow people above the Medicaid eligibility level to buy into the Medicaid program. So um, if Medicaid's under attack in some states, in other states, I think it's very robust and actually may provide a platform for expansion of coverage. So perhaps the story is sort of tale of two cities, right? That we see um, concerns on one front, but optimism on others. I mean, it is ironic, though, that we're having this discussion since the Affordable Care Act was an attempt to raise a floor, establish a national standard and make, um, you know, healthcare coverage for, for low-income people in Alaska, New Jersey, and Alabama look the same and do, you know, by vagaries of Supreme Court decisions and state level political decisions, we, we, we have, we're looking, we're back to looking very much what it looked like before the Affordable Care Act, where we have great state level variation um, that the, also I would say as academics, at least it is going to offer us many opportunities to study that state level variation to see what, what's the impact on, on health outcomes. I, I would ask you, Heather, not to encourage Professor Doom and Gloom uh, sitting there in Maryland <laughs> by making any more references to Charles Dickens, because it'll it'll just make it worse. So let let me throw out a, a, a possible uh, silver lining. So, for example, the Indiana extension um, has a new waiver for substance use uh, disorder programs. Um, it's that uh, that longstanding, and I've never really understood it, Heather. The IMD exclusion uh, for short-term stays. Is is this something you expect to see more of? Uh, or maybe this is something that should just be handled at the federal level and just get rid of that exclusion completely? It's a good point. I think actually it, it's entirely possible that Congress will fix the statute there and allow um, substance abuse and behavioral health treatment in institutions uh, with more than 16 beds. And that's, in many ways, uh, uh, that exclusion goes back to the the deinstitutionalization institutionalization fights in the Olmstead
said decision, you know, the recognition that we didn't want to treat people and institutions who didn't need to be in institutions, but then perhaps overcorrected for that. And, 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 and that prohibited um, substance abuse in treatment in centers that, that, you know, now that we need all hands on deck, need to treat substance abuse. Um, there's so many people subject to the opioid crisis that we need larger, um, larger settings, congregate settings in order to treat them. So in the short term, they've granted waivers to a, several states, like you mentioned in Indiana, to allow them to be able to expand access to substance abuse treatment. But the, the better answer may come from Congress in lifting that exclusion in the statute. So that's one good news, uh, I think, that you point to. Another good news this week was that um, the, uh, the CMS did not opine or did not rule on Arkansas's request to roll back the Medicaid expansion to 100% of poverty. Um, and I think which would have put the people in the population between 100 and 138% into the exchanges. And there was, uh, some people see that as good news. Some people don't know what to make of that news, but there's a question of um, what impact that will have. Would that have would that have led to other states rolling back their Medicaid expansions um, and, and, and putting that population into, into uh, QHP exchange coverage, not in Medicaid? So I think some people have hailed that. That as good news and and as adhering to the statute, because the Obama administration had also ruled that states could not do what they called partial expansion. Um, and final good news I would point to, there's a lot of stuff happening at the local level, at the state level, as states think about the social determinants of health. I was just at a conference where a state Medicaid director was talking about managed care organizations paying for the social determinants of health because they see it in their interests uh, to take their capitated payments and to pay for things like meal delivery services. This was a state say, talking about uh, a managed care organization contracting with local um, food banks and, and providing meal delivery services to chronically ill patients. And that it, that the, the Medi- Medicaid managed care organization was seeing that upstream inter- intervention as being worth coming out of their capitated payments. So I think there are a lot of non-political things that are that apolitical things that are happening at the state level, whether it's the opioid crisis, the IMD exclusion, whether it's uh, managed care organizations getting in the game and addressing the social determinants of health that provide some optimism. I think there's also room, Heather, for more waivers, perhaps allowing for expanded case management, reimbursement, and and also sort of other sort of wraparound services. I mean, I, I, I hope that some states will will try and push those uh, boundaries a little bit. I think they, they might be really interesting. And uh, they, that goes back to some of the, the fragmentation questions that I raised earlier. I think that's right. Also, you're going to see you're seeing more states moving to manage long term supports and services, which is the opportunity to really promote home and community based services. And that would be tremendous progress for seniors and people with disabilities. So uh, and these are the kind of things that are largely below the political radar. And that's a good thing, I think, that are happening in uh, blue and red states. Let me give you another, actually, though, cause for optimism. I still think there are some states this year that may use waiver authority under Section 1332 of the ACA to help stabilize their individual markets. So this is getting out of the Medicaid world and getting into the 
commercial insurance market. But, and this is, this crosses blue and red states. Just last week, Governor Walker of Wisconsin signed legislation to create a state reinsurance program, which would basically reinsure their commercial carriers for their high cost cases. And those kind of reinsurance programs have the, the, um, the benefit of lowering premiums for everyone by reinsuring those high cost cases. So there you're seeing a Republican governor using a tool of the Affordable Care Act, actually, to address market instability in his state and and address um, um, address escalating premiums. The, he's following the lead of Alaska, Minnesota, and Oregon, which have used 1332 waivers to get federal funding to help seed these reinsurance programs. And the fact that we're seeing in this climate, Wisconsin, and then there are several other states that are that are still in the works thinking about it, again, um, demonstrates to me how governors have a number of tools in their tool belt and want to use them. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, there's a piece that uh, David Anderson wrote on in health affairs uh, the other week looking at the 1332 guardrails um, in particular not increasing the federal deficit and speculating that with the repeal of the individual mandate that actually might now make for more flexibility in states um, uh, proposing uh, more interesting 1332s oh that's interesting I, I might see it the opposite ways if you repeal the individual mandate then your baseline becomes less favorable you have because the assumption is the repeal of the individual mandate means fewer people covered, right? So when you do a 1332 waiver, you have to show you're covering as many people and you have to, you're asking the feds to give you all the money that would have come into your state otherwise. And so if you fewer people would be covered, I would be concerned that your baseline would not be as favorable. And in fact, actually, uh, there are uh, about a handful of states, I wouldn't say it's many, but there are a handful of states considering imposing their own individual mandate, a state level individual mandate. And one argument I've heard them make is it gets you a more favorable baseline. Basically, it, it, it ensures that you have continuity of that mandate provision and that you don't see the coverage losses that we, that we anticipate we're going to see when the individual mandate goes away next year. So um, I, a couple states I would point to for people to watch, D.C. is considering a state-level individual mandate, New Jersey has legislation moving, and Maryland and Connecticut have proposals introduced. So it's not, you know, we, we know that the individual mandate was, was one of the less popular parts of the Affordable Care Act. So proposing an individual mandate may not be attractive in many states, but you're seeing some states saying, you know what, maybe we ought to use this year to impose an individual mandate so that we have a seamless transition next year when the federal individual mandate goes away since it was repealed in the tax bill effective 2019. So I would, um, your listeners may want to watch those states in particular may want to watch Connecticut and Maryland where their proposals would tie the individual mandate penalty would fine individuals more than the federal mandate did and would put those money, that money would auto enroll people into coverage. You know, the goal being, of course, not to penalize people for not having coverage, but actually to get them into coverage. So there are some interesting proposals percolating in Maryland and Connecticut to supercharge though the individual mandate at the state level. And, you know, it's interesting to watch. Again, it goes back, of course, to Massachusetts. Massachusetts had an individual mandate before and was really the model for the Affordable Care Act. And in Massachusetts, individual mandates survives to this day. 
and even with the repeal of the federal. So I think one area to watch is do any states jump into the breach now that it's been repealed at the federal level? And I have to chime in as the uh, Maryland resident here sitting in Baltimore that um, I have seen a lot to admire there. Um, I do hope that they try to do a little bit of work on the tax code with respect to altering the way in which state and local taxes are gathered to make that a payroll tax as opposed to uh, whatever the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act uh, doesn't allow <laughs> for uh, for our exemptions. So hopefully they're looking for a broad-based tax fix there. Um, if I could be sardonic, I, I am a bit worried that uh, bringing back the individual mandate won't be the best uh, political tagline for the Democrats in 2018 or 2020, but uh, perhaps on the state level, it's going to work. Uh, just a few last thoughts uh, and questions. One being that uh, it looks like Amazon now is going to be giving people on Medicaid half-priced Prime. And I'm wondering, you know, when we think about uh, a few months ago, we had the bit of a discussion about in Nevada, the potential for a universal Medicaid buy-in. I'm wondering if Medicaid status may become this sort of like larger key to corporate discounts. And just as we see that with gun, gun control, nothing can be done on the national level because of, you know, entrenched opposition, especially in the Republican Party to gun control legislation, perhaps, but, but certain stores are stopping selling certain types of guns. I'm wondering if we might see Medicaid status unlock certain forms of price discrimination, positive price discrimination for those on Medicaid by large firms becoming a sort of um, safety net program in a way administered by corporations. That's a super interesting point. And it, and, you know, and it highlights the broader point, which is if there's going to be a lack of activity at the federal level in terms of expanding coverage, will states jump into the breach? And you mentioned Nevada with the buy-in, that um, that proposal was vetoed, but I think other states are considering it. And I would mention in the same context, um, prescription drug prices. If nothing happens at the federal level, uh, we should be all be watching what states do on prescription drug prices because states are, are, are really struggling under the weight of growing prescription drug prices in the Massachusetts waiver which asks for authority to impose a formulary is very interesting one to watch because as soon as that, if that were to get approved, um, I think you would see other states jumping in. And it's again, sort of the, um, if inaction at the federal level, um, creating a sort of the breeding ground for state innovation. The other one, I guess that we're keeping an eye on, Heather, the um, the states that are prohibiting the sale of substandard plans uh, that are favored by the current administration. That's another way of kind of shoring up the, the core of the ACA. I think that's right. You, you're, what you're going to see is great divergence. It, Idaho, Idaho's current plan was blocked, but if 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 states take up the federal sort of invitation to offer um, short-term plans, then you'll see some states really moving back towards that pre pre-ACA looking individual market. And then you'll see a cohort of states actually really rushing to shore up and implement at the state level those kind of ACA-like protections. And so you're going to see a greater divergence. Um, and I think you're right. So you'll see some states jumping in to say, well, we're, we're going to ban outright. Now, some states already do. In New Jersey, short-term plans are subject to the same rules, and so which is an effective ban. But I think you'll see other states jumping in. And finally, you're seeing states jumping in um, through litigation. You know, I think California, the the state attorney general announced this past week that he's formed a, str- a healthcare strike force that is going to um, push back 
on efforts to what he called erode the Affordable Care Act. So that's just another example of states jumping in and other states um, have signaled that they will join California on that front. Well, you know, whenever you're on the show, we could we could go on for a couple of hours. Um, it, it's so great to have your expertise here. But let me just ask one final question. You mentioned a couple of times about sort of the experimentation through waiver and that I think you said something like, and we'll know whether it works or not. And I'm wondering whether that's the case, because I have not been particularly impressed by the transparency of states um, analyzing their own progress using waivers. And I think back to the Indiana extension, where uh, the uh, the uh, extension proposal lauded what had happened in Indiana, but didn't mention the number of folks who had uh, lost their coverage. And there was a recent GAO report that really seemed extremely critical of CMS about knowing uh, exactly what is going on and and uh, whether we really are getting good reporting out of this. Is, is this something that we're just going to have to live with? Or are there outside bodies, perhaps uh, uh, researchers that can sort of fill some of those gaps so we know what's more about what's going on? You're right. The, the GAO report was really a call to action. And I think the good news was that it was largely reflective of of past administrations. So, you know, one can hope that the current administration can embrace that. And certainly um, the current administration has talked about wanting to study this. So let's, you know, let's take them at their word and and partner and study. But I think you're right. The This is a, a place where academics can play a really important role. And you're seeing in particular, which you all will appreciate, the role of state in state um, higher ed institutions and state researchers um, jumping in, and they tend to have very good access to data through agreements with their state Medicaid programs. So they're poised to do that kind of analysis. And I, what I'm also seeing is that the philanthropic community is recognizing that this is an important inflection point. And I think you'll see funding of it independent evaluations as well, as well as what's required of the states themselves. And, and I will say as a former state, I was New Jersey's commissioner of health and senior services and self-evaluation was is never your top priority <laughs> when you're um, a state official you're you're drinking from a fire hose all the time so I'm sympathetic to how hard that can be so I think um, it, it I would expect both the role of academic institutions but in particular philanthropic institutions jumping in and saying that we really need to learn from this and make sure we're not losing ground so don't don't give up hope and that was the week in health law a big thank you to Professor Howard for joining us on Twitter you can find her at Heather H Howard oh so much fun as always Heather thank you so much thank you we post our show notes at twill.com I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank. I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>